by asking for God's favor. Lord, I love you and I thank you for each person that's here. They're here for a very specific reason. I ask that you help us all to know that, to understand what you're wanting to accomplish in us right now, please. Thank you that your mercy is uh, never ending and your love is uh, all that we could ever need. Please bless in your name, amen. All right, we're working through the prophet Isaiah and his writings to Israel. And just to get you dialed back in, the big threat in mid-8th century is Assyria. And that nation is dominating, coming out of ancient Babylon and sweeping to the west and going south right along the seaboard and headed straight for Israel. And they are a fierce, fierce nation. Uh, And so Isaiah is prophesying during the reign of the four kings like Uzziah and the last king, of course, Hezekiah. And all of this uh, leads to a tragic end for Israel when the Assyrians, in fact, did invade. So I want to focus on, um, first of all, chapter 4. We're walking through the book, and we looked at 2 and 3 from last Wednesday night, or last study, rather. And I want to focus on 4. Now, to get you ready for this, I want to remind you that you're holding songs these are songs, they're poems. And the brilliance of Isaiah as a writer is amazing on what he's able to do, the wordplay, the lyric, the rhythm, the, the meter of, of his text. So in chapter four, uh, one more comment. Um, one of the things that's unique about Isaiah is that he is able to say as hard a thing as any of the other prophets say and even talk about really horrible things But he brings in some of the sweetest, most beautiful, loving language of all the prophets. I mean, it is is the mystery of a profound love story, beautiful, loving language, merciful language. But it's also, hey, this is coming and this is what it's going to be like. He does both. It's not all like Amos for three transgressions and for four. You're going to get it for three transgressions and for four. Boy, this one's coming. Amos is hard. The whole book is hard. But when you look at Isaiah, it's this mix. It's back and forth. His ability to try to encourage, but his ability to say the hard, hard thing. I think there's a lot of wisdom in that for all of us. So, all right, let's look at chapter four. Um, For seven women will take hold of one man on that day saying, well, we we will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. And take away our disgrace. Now that is a reference that we would not appreciate in modern culture uh, as Westerners. And we wouldn't appreciate it as uh, Christians. Because we don't, we don't think in these terms. I'm going to move to make it a little more visible. You know, for example, how many, how many wives should one man have? <laughs> you know, we, we Christians kind of say, hey. One at a time, at least, you know, only one. And, um, and that's, that's true. You know, Jesus in Matthew 19 uh, makes it very clear in response to the Pharisees. Question, can you divorce your wife over anything? And Jesus says, no, you can't divorce your wife over anything. The liberal school. And he says, there's specific sins that are so serious. Then the answer would be yes. And then he says this, uh, if, 
in the beginning, it wasn't this way. It was God created Adam and Eve, and the two became one, and you don't separate that. It doesn't say Adam and Eve and Yvette and Yvonne and, you know, seven other gals' names. However, this is, there is actually a biblical basis for polygamy. I know that's not a fun idea. But if you read Exodus chapter 21, verse 10, Torah, Holy Torah says a man can take a second or third wife. It's in the law. Right out of the book, okay? And we can't soft sell it. It is what it is. Now, you're also in a culture where what's the, birth, what's the mortality rate at birth? It's high. If a kid made it to age 15, it's amazing. All right? And so the, the, the mortality rate for the mother giving birth, the mortality rate for the child dying in the birth process or in the first 15 years of life is so high, about 80% of the kids never made it to that point. Okay? Really tough time to be alive. Okay? So in order for the tribe to survive, propagation of the species was such a priority. Uh, you know, we make marriage about sex and make sex about sexiness, but it was, for them, it's like, we've got to survive. So it's a very, very different idea, all right? And so, uh, now, if you look at Exodus 21.10, it says this, if a man takes on a second or third wife, he's obligated to give her three things. And if he will give her these three things, it's fine. If he fails to give his second and third wife these three things, she's free to walk. She can turn her back on him and leave. Food, clothing, conjugal rights. And if, and if he would do that, she'd stay. And if he fails in any one of those three categories, she can leave. All right, now you get it? Now look at this again. For seven women will take hold of one man and say on that day, we will eat our own bread and we'll wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our disgrace. So what's he talking about now that you know that? What is he saying? What's that? Certainly there's, there's provision in the law, food, clothing. He said, we'll feed ourselves, we'll clothe ourselves, but we don't want to be single. We want to be married. We, we need, because we are Mediterranean females, and the, the identity of the female is in the male. And so a single woman is a disgraceful thing. Okay? It has nothing to do with being single today. Not, not even close. All right? But in this culture... A female to have identity must give birth. You've got to have a male for that. And again, so marriage is about propagation of the species. We've got to, to survive. So guess what? During war, famine, and the coming judgment, how many men are killed in battle? A lot. So there's more women than men. So this is a sign of the judgment of God on Israel in radical disobedience. It's going to be so bad, seven men are going to try to go after one man and say, please marry us all. Please, we'll feed ourselves, we'll clothe ourselves. We understand Torah, we understand the obligation, but please give us your name. Please give us kids. That is a sign of judgment. That is a sign that Israel is in a horrible way. And then look, verse 2, 4 2. Right out of the gate, he says something heartbreaking. Seven women going after one man. And heartbreaking, horrible judgment. And then he goes, look, on that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the earth will be the pride 
and the beauty of the survivors of Israel. And it will come about that the one who is left in Zion and remains behind in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who is recorded in life in Jerusalem, record books of citizens who are following the ways of Yahweh. When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the bloodshed of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning. So he, he says there's hope. Even in the midst of terrible judgment, there's hope. And uh, verse 5, then the little crate over the entire area of Mount Zion and over her assemblies, a cloud by day and smoke in the brightness of a flaming fire by night. Does it remind you of something? Cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. What does it remind you? The Exodus. God is not forsaking his people. God will punish disobedience, but he will not forsake his children. It's beautiful. And there will be a shelter to give shade from heat by day and refuge and protection from the storm and the rain. All right. That's just one little chapter. And wow, it is packed with so much. Now let's look at chapter five. And this is where we're going to go deeper going to work hard chapter five begins the a song and he says let me sing now for my beloved a song of my beloved about his vineyard my beloved beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill and look what he does he, he, he dug all around it cleared of its stones planted it with the choicest vine built a tower to protect it a watchman put it right in the middle carved out of that out of stone for the crushing of the grapes to produce wine, but it only produced worthless ones. And now, you inhabitants of Jerusalem and the people of Judah, you judge between me and my vineyard. Let's pause there. In Matthew 21, Jesus tells the same story. Jesus, behold, there was a, there was a, a man who owned a vineyard, and he noticed it wouldn't produce grapes. And what did he do, Janice? What did he do? Not yet. Not yet. What does he do at first? This is the language of hope. What does he do? Do you remember? He builds a trench, digs a trench, and what does he do? Fertilizes it. Waters it. Does it again year after year, doing everything uh, a vineyard keeper could do to make this thing flourish. And Janice, after years of trying, this is a worthless vine. This vineyard's worthless. Let's cut it down. Destroy it. All right. Jesus borrows the story of Isaiah in the vineyard and pulls it into his world today to judge those who are keepers of the vineyard. Which begs the question, what's the vineyard and who are the vine keepers? Do you know? What's the vineyard and who are the vine keepers? Well, your Bible cannot lie. So that is good. All right. She's right. The vineyard is Israel. Then who, who tends the vineyard? What's that? That's always a good answer, Maddie. Absolutely always a good answer. But more specifically, the religious leaders of Israel are obligated to care for the vineyard. Okay? And they fail. And so you get this courtroom language, lawsuit language. And verse, um, look at this. Um, 
Verse 3. And now, you inhabitants of Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge. Judge between me and my vineyard. See if I'm not taking care of the garden. Come on. What do you got against me? How have I failed you, Israel? I've watered you. I've fertilized you. I've protected your borders. I've treated you. You know, the, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do as the vine keeper, the vine dresser. Where's the grapes? Where's the fruit? Come on. Judge. Yeah, you got something against me? Let's talk about it. This is, this is courtroom language, actually. And so verse 5, um, or verse 4. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then? I expected, uh, why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, do to produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge. It will be consumed. I will break down its wall, and it will become a trampled ground. I'm going to turn it into wasteland. Language of the coming destruction brought on by the Assyrians, and then later on, Babylonians, same thing. Vineyard gets another chance. More rebellion. The leaders of Israel failed to lead Israel, protect the garden, and it is judged, okay? Um, verse 7, the vineyard of the Lord of the armies of the house of, is the house of Israel, and the people of Judah are his delightful plants. So he waited for justice, and behold, bloodshed. He waits for righteousness, but behold, there's a cry for help. All right, now, I want you to see something here, and I've got it up on the screen. So in Isaiah 5, 8, all the way down to 23, he pronounces these woes, six woes, all right? Now, in Hebrew, um, woe is hoy. In Hebrew, hoy. And you may have even heard, you know, some slang Hebrew, uh, modern Hebrew language, like hoy vey, like, oh, brother. <laughs> you know, hoy vey, are you kidding me? Uh, and, and, and that's kind of kind of vernacular for modern Judaism today. But in, in this period of time, when you said hoy, this was bad. It's shockingly bad. What's going to happen or what is being judged. And he says it six times. Hoy. So those who attach house to house and join field to field until there's no more room. And you alone are a landowner landowner in the midst of the land. Why is that a potential problem? What's it, what does it speak of? What's the hint at? Greed. Greed. You're buying up all the land. Hoarding land. That's what it is. The next one. Hoy to those who rise early in the morning that they may pursue intoxicating drink who stay up late in the evening so they may be inflamed by wine. So that wine is inflamed. By the way, during its zenith, Israel, Israel was known as producing some of the best wine in all the Mediterranean world. Massive wine exporting business in Israel and these amazing grapes that they, they grew there. Um, uh, next section, whoa, hoy, to those who drag wrongdoing with cords like they're pulling a cart. This is the language of deliberate, intentional sin. We're not talking about somebody that stumbles and slips and struggles with, you know, you hit your, you hit your thumb with a hammer and you say, 
gosh darn it, you know, we're not talking about that kind of stuff. This is deliberate, intentional rebellion against the will of God. Verse 20 is perhaps one of the most famous in the earlier writing of, of, of Isaiah. Hoy, hoy to those, hoy, to those who call evil good, good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who call a bitter thing sweet and a sweet thing bitter. They're flipping things. They're switching. They're calling a bad thing good and a good thing bad. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes, clever in their own sight. And then he comes back around to alcohol. What's the deal with alcohol? Woe to those, hoy to those who are wise in their own eyes, hoy to those who are heroes in drinking wine. I'm sure no one in a crowd of this size has ever been to a cake party. You know, there's things they do in 12th grade sometimes because they think they're really cool. Or, you know, you do it in college or something, you know. And it's like, who can get as blitzed as possible? And they have funnels with rubber tubing and they're pouring straight vodka and beers and Jack Daniels. And some kid, some girl is just, ah, some guy. And they are chugging as much alcohol as you. They're trying to get out of their mind drunk. And then they laugh at it and get it on video. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men and mixing intoxicating drink, right? Okay. Now, who is he addressing? These woes, hoy, who is he addressing? Remember, we just talked about a vineyard? Buckle up. You nailed it. It's really serious. It's really serious. Now, what does Jesus do? Look at what he does in, in Matthew 23. He pronounces eight woes on Pharisees and scribes. Do a comparison of these things. Now, by the way, uai is the Greek word for woe, but Jesus wouldn't say that. When Jesus spoke, he spoke what language? He spoke Aramaic, exactly. And it would have been oi. But when they translated it from Aramaic to Greek, it's uai. All right, so uai, whoa, you scribes and Pharisees. Look, look at how they are being judged. Run a comparison of these things. Is there something similar between the two lists? Greed. What's that? Greed. Who said greed? Absolutely, Connor. This is about greed. And with that greed, um, okay, quick cultural concept that's important for us. Um, we live in a, con in a culture today where we have pretty much settled in our brain a concept called unlimited good. Unlimited goods. Which means that if I go to uh, Costco or Sam's, 
I'm going to go find a giant crate with thousands of boxes of Pop-Tarts. And I, for, I will never want, you know, I'll, I'll never have a lack of Pop-Tarts, never be wanting those. And, and little elves come out at night and they restock with thousands of Pop-Tarts. And so there's this unlimited sense of material goods, all right? Well, our, our little paradigm, our Western paradigm got a little shook up over something called toilet paper a couple years ago. Remember? And we're like, this is bad. They're out of toilet paper. And you go, how can this be? We're Americans. <laughs> you know, there should be thousands of cases of paper right next to me in case I need one. And, and, and so we began to see just a little bit of what is called unlimited goods. All right? Let's say there's 25 people in the room right now. There's 25 people in the room, and at the store, there's only 10 boxes of cereal. Okay? Now, if every little family unit buys one box, 10 boxes of cereal can feed everyone tonight. Okay? But if someone gets greedy and they buy two boxes, what does that do to someone in the group? They don't have something to eat tonight. That is a very, very critical functional Mediterranean concept that we don't appreciate. Limited goods. There's so much to go around. And so, Connor, if someone's greedy, it therefore means they're taking what belongs to somebody else, is what that really means. And so, notice you, you're buying up all the land. So it's house to house and the border of the property, border of the property, you're buying it all up. That means you're taking from somebody, is what that means. Okay? Pharisees. What's that? It's like stealing. It's like, actually, that's actually the right way to see it. It is just like stealing. Yeah. Somebody greedy, even if they paid good money for the second box of cereal, from the perspective of the poor, it would be seen as stealing. Really unusual dynamics. We're not Mediterraneans. We don't think in these paradigms. They do, and this is what's going on. And so when Jesus attacks the Pharisees, if you notice, there's a tremendous problem with greed. They're abusing people, and they are uh, taking advantage of the poor, parents, all kinds of things. So Jesus, just like Isaiah announces that God is going to punish Israel and punish the, the leaders, religious leaders of Israel with the Assyrians coming down from the north. Jesus does the very same thing against the scribes, against the Pharisees for the same kind of concept that you're abusing people. Okay? So can I just make a really plain, clear statement? <laughs> people in positions of religious power Okay. who abuse people in the name of God, God doesn't take that lightly. That's bad, okay? And it's something that God will judge furiously. Does this make sense? David? And you know what it is? It's pride because of it. And that's why God hates pride the most. Because what they do is take on that, that sin of pride yeah. and then abuse the power that they have. Yeah. And they see themselves higher than yeah, it, it's, it's an ugly mess. It's an ugly mess. So, okay. Yeah. 
greed, buying up limited good, which result, as you said, uh, Jenna, a kind of stealing effect on somebody else. Yeah. And it's all about staying drunk. <laughs> Let's party till we drop. Let's stay buzzed. Let's dull the thing. And it's like this intentional sinning and, and then justifying things by saying a good thing is a bad thing is evil and an evil thing is a good thing. Yeah. Did you see, do you know who Anne Hathaway is, the actress? Did you see what she said about abortion? It's another word for mercy. Talk about substituting light for dark and dark for light. You know what abortion is in this culture? Across the board. You know what it is? It's called contraception. It's all about contraception. This isn't about because some little girl uh, was raped by a father. It's, it's not about that. That's like less than 1%. It's not. It's about... It's an inconvenience to be pregnant. It's what the whole thing's about. And so to spin that, a, a, a murderous act, which is evil, they call it, well, it's really just mercy. That is absurd. We do this very thing. To call a man a woman and a woman a man, to flip this stuff, it is right out of Isaiah. It's fascinating. So, okay. All right, now... I want to turn it over to you guys, um, and I want to really engage you, because it's serious stuff. Um, what do you think? How do we pull Isaiah 4 and 5 out of this culture, which is written mid-century, 8th century, B.C., into our world today? You know, 2,000 or uh, almost 3,000 years later, and here we are, 2022, and if you've, if you've not seen Matt Walsh's special on what is a woman, please watch it. PhDs and MDs afraid to answer that question. Afraid. Yeah. So what do you think? How do we pull this into our world? This, this message of Isaiah, mercy and compassion. I'm going to raise up a branch. Israel's not been a good branch, not been a good vine. I've got a very special vine coming. And you'll hear about it, chapter 11. It's Jesus. I'm going to plant a vine out of the branch, out of the root of Jesse. His name is Jesus. It's coming. The Messiah's coming. It's amazing. What do you think? How do we, how do we, how do we protect ourselves from becoming Pharisees? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's so good, Connor. I saw a T-shirt. I think I don't know if my wife bought it or not, but she said, "In a culture where you can be anything, <laughs> if you want to identify as a moose, all right, go ahead. You can be anything. Please be kind. Just be kind." And that's really, really important. Yeah, that's so good. Something else from Isaiah five and the six woes. And Jesus in the eight wolves. Anything? How do we pull it into our world today? Or maybe this is a more provoking question. What are some ways the church, the modern church today, abuses people? Boy, am I sticking my chin out there, eh? What do you think? What are some ways the modern church 
behaves in such a way that it actually abuses people. What do you think? That's good, Amy, and, I, and there's a lot of courage behind your statement. It's so easy to focus on the love of God and completely turn a blind eye to the holiness of God. And he's both. And you can't ignore one for the other. You've got to do both. So John 1.17, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth, okay, there it is, holiness and love, met in Jesus Christ. So something the law could not give you. What else? What are some ways the churches uh, churches abuse people? I think even just allowing. Hmm? I think even just allowing people who have hurt others to continue, especially leadership. Yes. I mean, even just the past five to ten years, we've seen so many people <coughs> tell more of the stories of what has happened to them and yeah. how the leadership has like gathered around like certain big figures to pass the press and say, well, the ministry matters more. Yeah. If you're given a position of authority or you have any sort of like gifting or power more than another person has, that's yeah. used for the protection and benefit of others. Yeah. So to use that to harm others is almost like an act of, I don't know, like, like, like desecration of what God is doing. Yeah, what is holy, yeah. And you're, you're onto something, Michelle, when you read through the scriptures, God makes a big deal about big, strong people picking on little weak people, okay? That idea, it's all through the Old Testament, it's all through the New Testament, right? Um, so uh, I'm, a, I'm a sure, or I am, a, I am sure that you are aware of uh, the report from the sexual abuse by the Southern Baptist Convention. I don't know if you guys were that. There's like 300 names. They name names. It's serious, you know? And what's egregious about this, Michal, is a lot of this stuff was known and never dealt with. And so you've got pastors, staff members, state representatives, national representatives, abusing people in, in their own offices, abusing people and getting away with it. Um, I have uh, licensed therapists that refer to me. I had uh, clients referred to me who were abused horrifically, I won't describe what happened, from a licensed therapist slash pastor in Little Rock. And the women that were abused were referred to me. Bad stuff. And it went on for years. Years, yeah. Uh, what, about, what about the churches? And uh, I don't know if you've ever seen Kenneth uh, Copeland and these guys and what they say about money. And, and the arm twisting and the manipulation about money. and it, Yeah, the abuse uh, regarding money, the abuse regarding your power, uh, a false gospel, Joel Osteen, complete false gospel. It's horrific uh, what Joel Osteen's doing. And it is the most popular guy, you know. He's packing out 30,000, you know, on Sunday morning. 
So uh, it's serious stuff. I mean, this is not a small matter. It really isn't. How about this? We can, we can take it down to maybe a, kind of a, a micro perspective. Parents who abuse kids, you know? Parents who are impossible to get along with and, and how that happens. Or even a husband and a wife in a marriage and wives that abuse husbands, husbands that abuse wives. Uh, it is a, I'm, I'm trying to say in, in the moral economy of God, Abuse is really bad, okay? Can I just get that out there plainly? It is bad. And when the strong harm the weak, that, that gets God's gander up. That's really, really bad. Calvinism so. is abuse What's that? Calvinism is abuse. Yeah, certain doctrinal systems. Yeah. Yeah. And then what about the charismatic thing where, okay, so... Let's say um, I have cancer, okay? And uh, it's, it's bad. And so I, I go to my charismatic church and, and they, they anoint me with oil and I confess every sin I could think of and maybe some extra because you really want to get clean, right? For God to move. Because they tell me that where there's sin, there's no blessing, right? God doesn't fill holiness into an unholy vessel, right? So there can't be a sin problem. And so I'm weeping, confessing every possible thing I've ever done. Stuff I thought about, didn't do it, but I thought about it. I'm getting as clean as I can. I'm getting a bucket of olive oil on me. I'm anointed. And I, my diagnosis of cancer doesn't go away. Bingo, you beat me to it. So it's on me. It's a faith problem or it's a secret sin problem. God doesn't accept me on that. Happens to people all the time. Yeah. As opposed to the theologically sound position, which is that we live in a fallen world with broken bodies and things don't go well genetically sometimes. And it's awful. It's the thorn and the thistle of Eden destroyed. And God doesn't always heal. Did you know there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people that Jesus stepped over and didn't heal in the Gospels? We think everybody got healed. They didn't. We miss that. We miss the fact that he walked by some things. We, we, we miss the fact that, what did he say about the poor? He made a really cryptic comment about them. What did he say? They're going to always be with you. You mean he left some bellies unfilled? I thought everybody got pop tarts. What's that? Yes, it's in the law. Yeah, so that the poor and the sojourner can have something to eat. But what I'm trying to say is, even Jesus allowed for this margin of suffering. It's real. We're alive. We're human. Things happen, and uh, and they'll get untangled in the end. But meanwhile. To create a doctrinal system that so abuses a, a person that their problem, the lack of answer to their prayer, is because they don't have faith or they've got secret sin. <laughs> We're all screwed at this point. I mean, it's a mess. It is an utter mess, right? Um, so it's bad, yeah. What about Chris about like contorting the true meaning of scripture? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. There's been many message, message boards I've seen on Christian ones that said, 
Well, there's not a really clear cut thing about homosexuality. Yeah. And then someone actually comes back and says, Let me read you the scripture. Yeah, it's, it's real clear, actually. <laughs> real clear. I mean, we just. just uh, you know, leaders do that, too. You know? Yeah. No, there's, there's really not. I don't, there, you know, Jesus is not really the way to get to. Him, yeah. You know? Yeah. He's just saying that. Yeah. Walter, a guy named Walter Wink, literally, that's his name, Wink. PhD, uh, Bishop Spong, he's another PhD, you know. Those dudes, they do every kind of Olympic gymnastic work around in contorting of the scriptures to say, no, it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that at all. It's radical liberalism, yeah. It's real, and, and, and God, this is, this is true. God is serious about truth. Very serious about truth and serious about love. It's both. It's both, you know. So, um, okay. Um, I'm excited about next Wednesday because Isaiah chapter 6. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, lofty, exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. And what happens with Isaiah? Really beautiful. So, all right, um, let's do this. Let's look at Luke twenty-two, and um, I want to read this to us all. And um, uh, Belinda's got Lord's Supper things ready. If anyone doesn't have that, there's um, some there. When the hour had come, he reclined at the table, and the apostles with him, and he said to them. I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And we had taken some bread and given thanks. He broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is being given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. But woe, ah, woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to debate among themselves which one of them was going to do this thing, this betrayal. So in Luke's tradition, two things, a quick comment. The cup is mentioned twice, you know, if you want to follow that Lucan pattern, you might take a little bit of your juice, go to the bread, and then finish off the juice if you want to. And if you do that, think about it. Think about why Luke says it this way. And then Luke is the only gospel writer to say that this action is to be repeated. Do this in remembrance of me. He's the only one. Matthew and Mark give no directive. No directive at all. So... All right, let me pray over you, and then when you're ready, take the Lord's Supper. Father, thank you for love and grace. Thank you that all the woes that are pronounced against me fell on your son.
He was bruised and crushed for my iniquities. And like a sheep led to slaughter, he never made a sound. Father, thank you for the death of your son, Jesus, that we have life. Asking for your grace and your blessing right now, please. Thank you in Jesus' name, amen.